Welcome to this Memorial Day weekend 2020 special edition of Second City Sports Zoom style. Zoom style. There we go. <laughs> I'm Steve McKee along with co-host uh, Miss McKee McGee. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at SidKid80. That's S-I-D-K-I-D-A-0. That's S-I-D-K-I-D-A-0. Where can they follow you on social media, Lakina? You can follow me at Kina McGee on Twitter and at Kina underscore McGee on the Instagram. All right, join us for our special Memorial Day holiday weekend edition of Sega City Sports Zoom style. It's a good uh, personal friend of mine uh, and our affiliation, my affiliation with her through the Dean Davis show throughout the years. She's a, the legendary sports reporter here in Chicago for WBEZ FM 91.5. She's covered everything from the Bulls to the Sox to the Blackhawks to the Cubs and every, every other sports team in this town. Let's please welcome in Miss Cheryl Raystyle. Cheryl, welcome to the program. How are you? Thank you. I'm fine. How are you doing today? Uh, doing just fine. Just fine. You can follow Cheryl on Twitter at C Raystyle. That's the letter C Raystyle. Cheryl, this first hour of the program, we're going to focus exclusively on the last dance documentary that was uh, broadcasted by ESPN for the last five Sundays. Uh, before we really break this down, just give us your initial thoughts on the documentary. Uh, what did you like? What didn't you like about it? Well, I thought it was, a, it was good storytelling. And with that said, there's a lot that wasn't filled in. There's a lot that was omitted that should have been in there. There were people that were very important and vital to the, the Bulls, and they were left out. Um, but, but I think, you know, being able to have Michael Jordan sit down and talk was really important because, of course, you know, he is the centerpiece to the whole thing. But I thought there, again, I thought there was omissions. Um, I thought that uh, it was some. It was nice to see some of the people that I've known, and it was really hard because a lot of them that, that passed away. I knew all those guys that passed away, and it was you know, it kind of breaks your heart when you see them again. Um, but I was there through the whole process, and I saw a lot of things. Uh, I knew there was nothing. I didn't learn anything new for me. I'm not. It's not being. I'm not boasting. It's just that you know when you're around mm -hmm. it. You know, and, and there's a lot more that could have been told. Well, you were right. You were yeah, right there. No, you go ahead. No, go ahead, Lakeem. Oh, <laughs> okay. Well, you well, well, show show you're right. Yeah, the front row seat for all of that stuff. I mean, it, it's sort of weird. Like it was, it was beautifully, you know, paced and broken down the way that we kind of went back and forth from like the current time when they filmed it to like you know the very first championship or even further than that in the eight those eighties Bulls. It, it's sort of interesting to me that. There, like you said, there's so many things that got omitted. I, I just feel like maybe was it because it was just like the way it was edited or maybe like, you know, they just didn't approach a lot of people. What do you think about that? Well, you know, when you have Justin Timberlake having a, you know, I mean, why? I mean, there, there's things that were inserted there that make sense. And, 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 and as far as the beginning of the Bulls with Michael, they didn't even have the beat reporters that were, that, that were with him. Sam Smith did not start covering the Bulls to 89. So you had, you know, there, there's, and, and one of the beat reporters was Bob Sakamoto, who is now 
with Paul with the women's uh, basketball program there. He's their sport, you know, he's their sports SID there. So, you know, when you, when you could have had really some of the crux of some of the beginning of Michael, another person who was Dave Corzine. Dave Corzine lives in, lives in this area. He was on his team from the beginning. Rod Higgins, I'm surprised Rod Higgins wasn't, uh, it was because Rod Higgins was his friend on the Bulls when they were both teammates. And, and he's still with him with the organization that he's, you know, owned, owns now in Charlotte. So, I mean, when you, that beginning, those beginnings probably should have been mine much better because to understand how difficult the job was. And there's a lot of negativity about Jerry Krause, but how hard it was to build a team around Michael when you had these characters, you had some good people there, no doubt, but there was a lot of issues. Michael did bring up about the drug thing, but it was worse than what he said. It was really bad. And the fact is that, you know, Jerry Krause had to, how he did is, is kind of amazing because he's not, you know, he's not the most people person. And he was able to trade these players and get draft picks and, and was able to build the team around Michael. And I think that should have been a little more front and center because it, it's important to the whole story. You have to tell the story fully. And I don't think that was done. Yeah, I kind of wanted to piggyback off that point, Charlotte, about the whole uh, the cocaine circus, as the Bulls were called back then, prior to Michael being drafted there in 84. Now, it was little stories that came out at that time um, that um, uh, both of them had passed on now, the late Orlando Warge and yep. Quentin Daly, who had yep. his issues before entering the league. Yep. When I heard Michael Jordan tell that story, it confirmed two things for me. I know uh, that Orlando Warge had his drug issues. And I know he got suspended once he got to New Jersey, which was his next team after the Bulls let him go following the 86 season. They traded, they traded him. Well. They traded they trade him. him. Yeah. yeah. So I know news, uh, news wasn't made at that time of why the Bulls got rid of him, but it yeah. just confirmed to me why the Bulls got rid of him. Do you know anything, uh, any more insight that you could tell about, about the traveling cocaine circus uh, at that time? Well, here, here's what I can, I can tell you from what I observed. Well, one thing is what people, they didn't, you know, people don't remember, I think, is that Orlando Woolwich went missing for a weekend. Yeah. I remember that, yeah. Gone. <laughs> it was in oh my gosh. Because he was on a bender. You know, and, and the thing was, and Mike and Michael talked, I'm glad he talked about it. And and the fact that Craig Hodges was upset about that, I'm going, you know what, Craig, you weren't there. He, you know, because he came here some years later. And, and and the thing is, we watched that team that Mike was on that first year. And, you know, the the, the some of the, you know, the the guys would be in the huddle. But all the guys that were the users were all sitting there. They wouldn't even be in the huddle. So you knew, you know, we saw it there. We saw that that that, that disconnect was there, and and I think that's really germane to the. It was it was an NBA problem, and 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 the only thing that kept the NBA from really going in the gutters was it David Stern, with Adam Silver. Silver, they both were very uh, prominent, especially David Stern, uh, in getting the a deal done with the NBA with the union. To, to, okay, let's clean this up. And the fact is that Larry Bird and Magic Johnson had, you know, had taken over, you know, before Michael became real big, but they, they helped the league kind of, you know, get it into a better life because the drug problem was, was pervasive throughout, throughout the NBA. Yeah, you, you read about some of the stuff that went on during the 80s. You look at some of those articles now, it's just like, wow, like I'm surprised that the league was able to survive because yeah. Because if they went down that that hole that they yeah. were going to, I mean, there would be no more NBA. We wouldn't have no, LeBron or Kobe or anything it, like that. It was it was very close. It was very very close. Uh, 
was because people were not, because it was known that it was bad. People weren't going, you know, they weren't filling the stands. And so it was really important that, that, uh, that the league and, and the union, uh, Larry Flasher was the uh, head of the N NBA uh, PA. It was very important that they got together and they, they, you know, gave a drug policy. You know, they suspended players. You know, they, they, they did a, a great job of cleaning up what was really difficult. And you never clean up everything, you know, that, of course. But it was, it was a problem that had to be addressed and it was addressed. And that's why, and then, you know, and because they did that, and and then eventually, you know, you you they promoted their stars, you know, Magic, Larry, Michael, and got NBC. NBC wasn't there right away. They used to they used to put the uh, NBA Finals on CBS tape delayed. Mm -hmm. So you know when NBC came, to, so the whole when when Michael came in, that was when the progression of the whole league really took off. And Michael, of course, was the centerpiece at that point. And Cheryl I think. Been addressed more too in, in the in the you know as far as that goes. Yes. Okay. Sean Stato, WBZ FM ninety one point five here in Chicago, joining us on this special edition of Second City Sports Zoom Styles. We break down the Last Dance ESPN documentary. Cheryl, let's go to Michael Jordan's second year in the league. He wins Rookie of the Year in eighty five. Of course, mm -hmm. eighty six he breaks his leg in the now defunct uh, Oracle Arena. Uh, during that time, he went to North Carolina. The organization didn't know anything about it. He told them about, about it when uh, he came back, and, uh, of course, the organization was upset. They, quote-unquote, agreed to seven minutes a half. I knew about this even though I was young. I knew about it watching the fir his first home video, Come Fly With Me. But I didn't know that uh, uh, Jerry Cross, the general manager, had a, a stopwatch to a time every minute and every second that he played. Can you please tell us a little bit more about that? Well, Mark File was the trainer, and he had to tell Stan Albeck when the time was up. And yeah, okay. it was, that, was, that was the case. He, uh, he had him on stopwatch and Michael did not like that. Stan Albeck was the casualty of that. You know, Stan Albeck, you know, he wanted, he wanted to win too. And, and the, you know, he only got one year of Michael and it was only a few, a few games really when you look at the totality of it. Uh, and so he was a casualty in this. And when, and, and, and Michael and of course Stan Albeck and the coaching staff and the players knew that the Bulls, what would they try to do? Get a lottery pick. And Michael would be damned that they were going to, you know, tank the season. And so when, you know, of course, they, they end up making the playoffs, which doesn't give them a lottery pick. And then, you know, then they have, uh, w what happens is they go to the postseason and then Stan takes the, you know, takes the ropes off of him, takes the, you know, whatever you want to, however you want to, the cliche you want to use, they let him be free. And so when he was free to perform, he scores 63 points. And I think that game was the, was the shooting star for his career. I mean, you know, he, he had some good games, but that game, mm -hmm. when you have Larry Bird comparing him to God, <laughs> and when you have, you know, <laughs> and, and the fact is, the, nobody else, the team was a mishmash team at that point. They were still trying to, you know, put things together. But that game and the fact that Stan Albeck, you know, didn't pay attention to a time restrictions and let Michael play was really huge for his career to really take off that summer and going forward. And did I ever, did you ever hear the story about that season? There's a couple of stories. I, if you want me to tell you about that season. Shoot, go ahead. Mike, 
Michael Jordan breaks his foot. Okay. Uh-huh. I was working for the station that just got the Bulls that year. We got the Bulls. That was our first year having Michael Jordan on our radio, WMAQ radio. So before the season, the uh, promotions director said, hey, you know, because we had, we had a sports talk show and we had other things going on. And I was the executive producer for, for the sports talk shows. And they go, hey, we'll give you a couple of tickets per game, but you can't have the 76ers, you can't have the Lakers, you can't have the Boston Celtics. So, you know, okay, <laughs> fine. <laughs> Michael breaks his foot, <laughs> breaks his foot, get a call. Um, you could have as many tickets as you want for any game that you want all season long. <laughs> and then, then what happens was um, it, 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 got, it got so bad because people weren't going to the games. I don't know if people realized that at, what happened is the promotion department for the Bulls brought in Motown groups to play after Bulls games that season. And so people would you know, the people that had tickets, you know, especially when we gave them away for free, they didn't come to the game. They would come in the, for the Motown group that was playing that night. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> oh, my hey, gosh. Did Ray James perform that night? Did the Temptations reunite for the 85th time? <laughs> there, was, there was, I mean, there was a lot, a lot of groups. It was really, you know, I was like, man, <laughs> it was pretty, it was pretty entertaining. But it was funny because the, the place would be pretty empty. Then all of a sudden, the fourth quarter, you see people hey, coming in just for the group. <laughs> oh my gosh! Well, you hear the well, you hear those those stories about the fact that if you go back to the mid to the early '80s, DePaul basketball, men's yes. basketball yes. was the big mm-hmm. ticket. You Ray know, you Meyer. Could, yeah. yeah, and you could and you couldn't get a. a my, I know my dad. My dad went to a couple of games. He said that you couldn't even get a ticket to those games. Yep. The Bulls games, you kind of say, you know, come on in, you know, that that night. Yeah, and, and you know, and that's something that could have been brought up too in the in the in the last dance, because um, I knew Ray Meyer. I also did cover DePaul, and uh, I, you know, when they went to the Final Four in '79, you know, I mean, you know, everyone, and also when when Michael came into the league, that's when Ray Meyer was retiring, yep. and so it was kind kind of like the passing of the mantle from from Ray to to Michael. And, and so it's kind of interesting that that era, because there wasn't, ESPN wasn't what they are now. It was CBS and NBC basketball on Saturday and Sunday. And, and you know, when, when um, Al McGuire would come in to do games or Billy Packard and, you know, and, and, that, and CBS would come in to do games, it was huge. I mean, I got to sit courtside, you know, you know seeing play like Rod Strickland, I watched him courtside. You know, I got to see Dallas Comages, who I you know was a terrific player. Never was a great NBA player. Was was a terrific uh, collegiate player. Um, so I got to see you know all these players develop and and and, and come through. And then you know, the, that, then Michael Jordan and the Bulls took over. So it was a transition from you are absolutely correct from DePaul to the Bulls because of Michael Jordan. All right, let's focus in on the late '80s. As we break down the last dance documentary from ESPN right here on Second City Sports Zoom style with Lakina McGee, I'm Sydney Brown, joined by Cheryl Ray Stout. Cheryl, let's, let's focus on to the point where Doug Collins was hired as the next head coach for Michael Jordan and the Bulls. Of course, they improved every year. The first year, 87-40 wins, 88-50 wins, 89-47, but they did get to the Eastern Conference Finals before bowing out to Detroit. 
uh, what led to Doug Collins being let go? Because I, I don't think they really got into that. So, uh, the, the, of course, they did mention that Phil Jackson was an assistant on his staff. And, of course, he was named head coach thereafter. But what led to Doug Collins' firing in June of 89? Well, um, there's a lot of things that I know that I'm not going to say because it's, it's okay. all personal. Okay. Uh, but, but one of the things that they, they publicly told us that they didn't believe that Doug Collins could take him from A to B to C. He took him from A to B, but they didn't think he could take him from B to C. And there was some, some personality issues going on there. Um, Doug, is it, Doug is, the, you know, think about this. Michael Jordan had three coaches his first three years in the league. And Doug was one, one that actually helped Michael become a, a better player. They each had their, their hand, handiwork with him. And that's the other thing that they didn't bring up in, in, the, in the documentary is, is Michael's growth. It, he wasn't, you know, wasn't a star right away. He was, he was, he was terrific, but, he, but, but his game got better. And it was, it was when, when uh, Doug Collins brought in Johnny Bach to be the defensive uh, coach and what he did with Michael and Scotty and Horace Grant, how he developed those into the Dobermans and made them to what they became as far as a defensive unit and other players too, but those were the three keys. And the thing is, Doug was part of it, but Doug was, he's a different guy when he coaches and when he's off the court. He's a very, um, he, he just gets into it so much. His, his personality gets very, I don't know, he erupts a lot. You know, we would talk to him after a game and the sweat, he would sweat through his suit. That's how, you know, he, there was too, there was too much. Yeah. You know, was, you know, you'd see people sweat, you know, sweat on their arms, but his, his shirt would be drenched. His, which, so he put way too much into it. And I think he was having a hard time divorcing his brain from the, the, the play of the game, the energy of the game and the competitiveness of the game to a point where I, he looked like he was going to have a nervous breakdown or have a heart attack because he just was really too emotionally involved. And once he finished, once he got off the court and as, as a coach and you'd see him again as a, you know, when he was doing TV, you, st you saw a different player, a different man. And then when he coached Detroit, and, you know, he, you know, he went back to being the crazy. In fact, the, the interesting thing was um, somebody I knew in Detroit, called me up and she said you covered Doug, Doug Collins what's he's like what's you know I've, he's he looks great he's, he looks great I go you will see a transformation you'll see how he'll be now at the beginning of his tenure there and how he's going to be and after he got fired there he she said oh okay now I get it now I get it because he was too intense you went yeah you went from like you know Doug Collins like very like you know, rigorous and very in intensity, but to like Phil Jackson, who is more like the calm, you know, the Zen master, if you, if you will. Although we did see him, we did hear him swear during the huddle, during the- Oh, he used to swear all the time. He used to swear all the time. Oh, yeah, that, was, that's, a bunch of, that's a bunch of BS that he didn't. <laughs> I was gonna ask like, you know, is he like, you know, is it just like a persona that the whole Zen master thing, or is he like every other coach that listen to you? He, he kind of like goes crazy and, you know, swears every once in a while. <laughs> well, he, I don't think he goes crazy, but um, he knows how to read a room and he knows what to do, when to do it. And uh, he, he's an interesting person. One of the things they gave him all the credit 
and again, I'm going to get back to Johnny Bach, and, but his assistants, Johnny Bach, winners, Jim Clemens, you know, Frank Hamlin, you know, they were the, they were the ones that delivered all the messages to the players. He allowed, and, uh, and, and they always say that uh, a good president, a good CEO or good COO has people, they, they trust people to deliver the message to help, you know, build, build the staff, build the players. And so those assistants were very important to Phil's the way he managed the that club and so he was the over he oversaw everything but he allowed his subordinates to execute and deliver the messages and so a lot of times there was there was a little bit of a, a chasm between Phil and the players and he allowed those coaches to be the messengers and I, and I think that's why it works so well and I think that was missed in the in this in the in the series too because that's something we all know we all you 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 could if you ever talk to any of the players from that era they'll talk about Phil but almost everyone will point out something that an assistant did for them or developed for them and and that's you know what that that's what's really important it's really important for a head coach because of you know they have many things to do but sometimes there's things that they shouldn't have to be involved with. You know, some of the dirty work, give that to the assistants. And it may sound weird, but, but that's, it seems the way it worked for him. And, and it does work for the best coaches in the league. Steve Kerr's like that too. He, he has assistants that he relies on at, at Golden State. And so that's how the messages get across to players. They do have a rapport, but you also have to have a hierarchy and, and, and people to carry out your message. One of the first, um, one of my favorite parts of that documentary, sure, was, like you always say, it's, it's beautiful to see things grow from the beginning and then before you go, rise to the top. And I tweeted this at you uh, when the episode happened. Those battles with the Detroit Pistons, my late mother and a family friend had season tickets to the old Chicago Stadium. And you know as well as I do, I know you sat courtside to watch all of those games. It was nothing like it. I, I tell younger folks all the time, those games were like events. Detroit was already there after they got past Boston. The Bulls were on their way. They weren't ready yet. Although in 1990, I thought that that Bulls team could have beaten them, but Detroit had the home court advantage and they won game seven. Now in 91, we all, uh, the anniversary is this weekend that the Bulls swept the Pistons in Detroit on Memorial Day back in 1991. Give us your view from a reporter standpoint about that rivalry with the Pistons. It was um, it was like a, a boxing match most of the times, and and head games were being played and dirty play was being you know instructed, and it was interesting because we because for that series the, when they when they won in ninety one they put us right behind the Bulls bench, so I you know get to see things and hear things, and and it was kind of interesting was, you know, uh, the, the the everything went in every ounce of their being was on that court nobody left the court without all their energy being used without every facet of their game being pushed to the limit and the way michael and you know people didn't i think people finally did see uh, in this documentary which i think was really important is the beating michael took going in the lane and way he was knocked down and, and way he got up and, and it just would fuel him and what Scotty had to go through getting knocked down. And it was really important what Bill Cartwright did in the center. You know, he had, he had those battles with Bill Lambeer, which, you know, people will talk about that. They always talk about everybody else, but Bill Lambeer was very instrumental too. 
and, uh -huh. and you know, and, and Horace Grant, they all were important to it. And, and it was, it was not just a physical attitude that they had to really bring to it. They had to bring the mental attitude. And once they brought the mental attitude to it and they, they won, they, 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 they were able to beat them. That's a, that's probably the hardest thing to do, but the most important, and that's why you win. If you can mentally handle it, their bodies are pretty equal, but it, you know, you're taking a beating and then the bulls actually were starting to give back to, to the Pistons too. And that was important. And, and it's kind of interesting when we watch the series, of course, you know, Isaiah Thomas, you know, what he had to say, when Michael had to say, they will never exchange Christmas cards. <laughs> oh my gosh. Never. <laughs> he, um, Isaiah never liked the fact that, that Michael Jordan became the, the icon of Chicago that he always wanted to be. But I, I'll give Isaiah a lot of credit. He does an awful lot of work in the community in Chicago that people don't realize. So I, I'll always give him credit. But Michael did too, but Michael never did it publicly. And that's, that's, that's unfortunate because people should have seen how much Michael did off the court. But, you know, he never, uh, never wanted that publicized. Yeah, I just wanted to say uh, the last thing about the, the Pistons part of the documentary. Uh, during that 91 series, as you referenced, Scottie Pippen I, uh, was the best player on that court from games one through four. You're talking about the migrant headache that he went through uh, in game seven the year before. And, and if, if you notice, he was the only player uh, after uh, the, during the Bulls championship rally in 1991, he was the only one that mentioned what happened the year before, and he threw the, the championship T-shirt into the crowd. I just thought that that was interesting, but he really uh, redeemed himself during that series. He was the MVP, clearly, of that Eastern Conference Finals in 91. Right, and, and, and he, he had to learn what, he, what happened the year before. That he, you know, that he got, you got to play through things. Um, the funniest thing is that after that, in 90, when they lost to Detroit, I happened to be taking a flight back to Chicago. And luckily, they, they, they put me in first class because my seat was, wasn't available. And who was across the aisle for me was Juanita Jordan. And Juanita Ooh, goes, wow. to me, she goes, what happened to Scotty? I said, well, he had a headache. And she was like, are you kidding me? Said, eh, you know. I mean, it, it was tough, but, but that, that's the thing. I mean, Scotty had a lot of injuries and, and the fact that he was able to play through it after that, you know, and, and, and a lot of the guys had, had injuries and he played through it. And, and I think that, you know, that was the, that series against Detroit when they finally won in 91 was, was the most important part of going forward to win championships because you got to beat your nemesis. If you beat your nemesis, Again, I, I'd say it's not just a physical thing; it's the mental thing. And now you've crossed you've crossed that bridge, and championships are, you know, they they had the fights with with the with the Knicks, but the the, the Pistons were worse. I I think we all agree on that. Now going into that '91 NBA Finals with a still a very you know stalwart, the very worthy, although getting older, Lakers team with Magic and you know, Byron Scott and Worthy and such. What was sort of like the, were there like any nerves for the players? Cause it's like, the, those are their first time going to the finals for a, a lot of them. Were there like any nerves? Was like, what was their mindset? I think there was nerves in that first game. You know, that's why they, they lost it. You know, they, they were at home too, which, you know, maybe would have been best if they were on the road. Um, but, but what people don't know is, is, and we found out once they, we've got to cover a series, on the NBA Finals, is 
before practices, they had a podium set up on the on court and the player would be there and then you'd have this masses of media around each player. It was before the practice um, would be uh, the, the team that was going off the court and then when the team was coming on the court. So I, I think that's when it really struck the, the bulls like, oh my gosh, you know, the reality of, because you're at the Chicago Stadium, which makes everything bigger because there's no room. You know, so everything was more cramped. And I, and I think that was a, it was a real eye-opener. And so, you know, and, and the other thing is Phil, Phil had to change his coaching. He had to put Scottie Pippen on Magic Johnson. And I think that's what really turned the series, too. Sid? Is he frozen? I think he's frozen. Is he frozen? I think he, I think he is frozen. So uh, while we wait on said, <laughs> you know, I think he, oh yeah, he is. Uh, I've kind of, okay, well, well, while he reconnects, uh, I'll just go ahead and answer my, uh, ask, ask you my uh, next question. I'm going to that second NBA, in, in, you know, NBA finals to so trying to get to that, to the, to the repeat. Was there like any sort of like, okay, we're, we're, we finally beat the Pistons where they like, you know, had the, oh, there you are, Sid. They're back at the, uh, the mountaintop. Was there like any sort of like lingering, lingering sort of like, not necessarily like, you know, like, oh, hey, we can do this or like, it's going to be even harder now since they're now the hunted. They were always a hunter. Now they're the hunted. Was there like any sort of like sense in that? I, I think the interesting thing with, with uh, the second year is everyone thought that the Bulls were going to play Portland the year before instead of the Lakers. Because remember, Portland pushed the Lakers and they didn't. And Michael, again, when I talk about how he was developing his game, that's when he started implementing a, an outside shot, you know, and, 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 and that's, and the thing was, and, and the Portland Trailblazers were a very good team, but the, the word around the league was they weren't the smartest team. And that, that was, that's, that, that wow. was a real interesting, yeah, that, that would, you know, it was like, and I didn't cover them. So I, I couldn't say, you know, I mean, I only covered them. I covered them during the finals, but you know, I didn't, I didn't know the inner workings of them. And I, when I heard that I go, wow, that's a pretty bold, you know, slap in the face to call them not smart. And apparently it kind of showed through because um, they didn't realize that Stacey King was left-handed and <laughs> It was points where he was, yeah. And when he was in, and, 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 and the, and, and I thought that this, this again was missing in the series was the game when, when they won the, the championship, the Bulls were down by, I think it was 17 points in the fourth quarter. Yeah. And yep. Phil pulled everybody. He put his, 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 you know, his uh, bench in there. They want, they, they got that hole. They, you know, they climbed out that hole and that's a real, that's, that, that also says a lot about development of players. Again, that's where your assistants come in. And that's what they did. They always, that team was always ready. And I think because they had the experience the first time, the second time that experience came through when they really needed it. And that's when you had, you know, players like a Stacey King being able to perform because he was really important. Bobby Hansen, another one, you know, these are players that were really important to be able to win that game because you always want to win that game and not concede. Okay. We'll give up in that game and we'll win the next game because you never know what next game could be. Right. 
I uh, wanted to ask you about uh, covering Charles Barkley, Cheryl. On, uh, they brought him up uh, <laughs> oh, gosh. in the documentary. Of course, him and Michael Jordan faced <laughs> off in the 93 finals. Uh, I know it's not popular to say in Chicago, but taking my Bulls hat off and putting my NBA uh, analyst hat on, Barkley did deserve the MVP that year during the regular season. Now, what was, what was it like covering him uh, before those games during the finals, especially at Old Chicago Stadium? He was a riot. It was so much fun. <laughs> he set um, Frank Johnson over to the table that I was sitting with with a couple other people before the game. And Frank goes, hey, uh, Charles looking for some new bars to go to. You got any, you got any recommendations for oh, some God. bars that we can go to after the game? I'm like, oh, what? what? <laughs> you know? And then there was a, a Cubs game in between because they would, they would play every other day or every, you know, there'd be some day mm -hmm. in between during the finals. So I'm at Wrigley Field and I'm looking down behind home and there's a lot of activity going on. And I could see it's Charles Barkley down there sitting with fans behind home plate. So I'm going, okay, I'm going to go down there. And so I go down there, you know, and I go, hey, do you, can I talk to you? And he, he gave me an interview and, you know, he was having a great time. He was pretty lit. And I'm going, are you buying people <laughs> drinks? He goes, Hell no, they're buying them for me. Oh, <laughs> oh yeah, that that oh man, Charles is Charles is such a beloved figure now. I mean, it, it's amazing. But but you know, he did something really that 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 I will always appreciate. That summer when Michael's dad was murdered, remember that's right after that Michael's dad was murdered. Michael had a huge golf tournament that he sponsored. And, you know, this happened all around the time his dad was murdered. And Charles Barkley took care of it for him. He, he it was still called the Michael Jordan, uh, I, I forget the name of the particular uh, charity was for, but Charles Barkley came in to Chicago and he took over and he, you know, made sure that it was run smoothly and that, you know, it was, it went on as, as planned. And a bunch of the, you know, he brought teammates and stuff like that too. So, you know, that's something that that should be recognized that he came through for Michael during a real dark time of his life. Yeah, Charles Ray Sad of WBEZ FM ninety one point five in Chicago joining us here on Sega City Sports Zoom style. Cheryl, let's, let's focus in on Michael Jordan's father, Mr. James Jordan. And of course, you brought up his death. Of course, I remember at that time, the media was trying to connect Jordan's gambling promise to Michael Jordan's death. Of course, we all know that wasn't true, but it was quote unquote believable at that time. From your perspective, uh, 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 what was your take on how the media covered that at that time? Well, let's go back to 93, the Eastern Conference Finals, that, that just months before. Um, the Bulls are down 0-2 to the New York Knicks and Michael went to Atlantic City to, to do some gambling. And the New York Times, one of the writers made a big deal, Dave Anderson made a big deal about Michael Jordan going, you know, gambling, you know, down, they're down 0-2 to a series, you know, and they're, they're going gambling in Atlantic City. Now I was, I was just coming back from New York. I was taking, a, I took a, an early flight that, that day and the interesting, I'm hearing it on, you know, sports, you know, the guy I was working with was going to town about it and, and, and they're all talking, I go, I go, I'm thinking, what's the big deal? It's Atlantic City, it's legal there. You know, I'm, you know I, I'm not thinking anything of it, right? So I get up to the Birdo and the window was open at the Birdo. It was just me and Chuck Davidson from Channel 2, the cameraman from Channel 2 was sitting in there and Michael came in 
to the court. And I just go, oh, you've been a bad boy. You know, just teasing him. <laughs> and um, the cameraman brought up his camera and Michael closed the window. So after the practice, by, by the time the practice was finished, all of a sudden the Berto media room was filled with all sorts of people, news media. You know, the news, TV news people came. And I'm thinking, again, I'm going, he's went to Atlantic City. It's not like, you know, I, I just, I didn't, I, I, my brain wasn't registering it. So we were walking in and Michael and I are walking, you know, I walked with him. I said, Michael, just have to tell us what happened. He goes, yeah, I know. Yeah, I know. So we, we get out of the court and I asked the first question of Michael, could you explain what happened with you in Atlantic City? And under, you know, can you tell us what, what happened? And he proceeded to say, my dad thought it was a good idea to blow off some steam, got a limousine. So we went up there because I just needed to, you know, just needed to the blow off steam. And so, um, and if you, and I'm, I'm saying that's fine with me. Right. And, but, a, but a news guy standing behind me goes, Michael, you got a gambling problem? Michael, do you go to the boats in between Bulls games? My, you know, he's going on and on and on. And I'm like, what, again, what's the point? And so that was, that particular thing is why people were connecting James's murder when, when that happened. And that's unfortunate because there's no way in hell that that would not have been leaked somehow. There would be some proof. There is no proof because it didn't happen. There was no gambling thing that he was being, you know, sat down for. And so it was, it just, it was a disservice to Michael. It was a disservice to the league. It was a disservice to James Jordan, you know, because that it was a horrible death. And I got to know him pretty well. And he was, he was like a little imp. He was just, just so delightful and fun to be around. And, and they were really close. They were really, really close. You know, I, I've seen a lot of, you know, family members with players and stuff like that, but there was something about them that was really special, you know, and, and like when, when um, Jasmine was born and, and, and James comes you know, jumping down the hallway, he goes, I got a granddaughter. I got a granddaughter. I mean, you know, that type of stuff, you know, I mean, there was, there was a warmth around him. And, and so when people were trying to connect gambling to that, that's a bunch of BS. And it, and it, it's really, it, it's a real shame that that is, is even discussed the way it has. Yeah. I mean, just imagine nowadays with social media, I mean, this, this, if this was a socialized, then it would be like a hundred times worse now. So it's unfortunate that it, it came to that. So let's go a little further along to like, Jordan's return, first retirement and going into baseball. We saw that you know, he kept an eye on, on the team and what they're doing. What, I'm wondering, like, what was the point when he decided, you know what, I need to come back? Was it because you know, he was just mentally and physically exhausted? Because no, no. we saw, yeah. Well, you have to understand why he, he left the NBA. And he left the NBA because he was completely drained. And also, his father's murder was huge. It was huge on him. And I broke the story about him playing baseball yep. because Michael used to talk to us before games all the time. We'd, you know, 45 minutes before the game, we'd be in the, lock, in the locker room and he'd be talking. So it was in 1990, Michael uh, was at Comis old Comiskey park and he took batting practice and, and he, he threw in the bullpen. And so he, you know, and we talked about baseball and he said to me, 
it would be 91, between 91 and 92, he says, you know, he says, you love baseball. And I go, yeah, I do. I love baseball. And he goes, when I quit, the, quit playing basketball, I'm going to play baseball. And I go, Michael, you'll be 40 years old by that point. You know, you're not going to ride the buses. And he goes, we'll see. So fast forward, I get a, I get a great source. I break the story about Michael playing baseball, you know, and it was interesting because we were, uh, when he, so, so then what happened in the spring of 95 was that the, the NBA, MLB was having a strike. And Michael was with the minor, because for, for people that may not understand, when there's spring training, you have, you have the, a minor league camp and the major league camp on the same location. They're at the same, same uh, uh, stadium. So Michael was with the minor league camp. And Ron Shula, the GM, and the White Sox wanted Michael to move from the minor league camp to the major league camp because they were going to have like scab players and stuff like that. And Michael said no. He took his, you know, took his stuff and he left. And I was at the, then so shortly after that, I'm at the Birdle, windows closed. Most of the media had left. Remember, the, the Bulls were no longer the star attraction because Michael wasn't there, even though they had, I thought they had a great year in, in 94, you know, that was a great 93, 94, because that was one of the best executed uh, team because they, they really ran the triangle. Great. But I was at the Birdo windows down and I'm going, I heard Michael Jordan's practice. So if you've ever been able to be by a practice that Michael was ever at, you know, the sound and you know, the intensity. And I heard that. And I got a phone call from somebody from from Florida that was covering spring training he said Michael why you know Michael had left and why he had left and told me everything that was going on I had a player a player's friend called me up and said Cheryl Michael's at practice we I was with the the group when we had breakfast together so after that practice I went in there was a again there was like I think there was five of us covering the team went into the uh court Bill was available and, and then players and I wait till everybody left. And as Phil is walking up the steps, I go, that's Michael in there, isn't it? And he mm -hmm. goes, yeah, it is. It is. Mm -hmm. And then I got a player to confirm it. So it, it, it was one thing that Michael told me too, when, when he came back, we were, in, you know, we were in Indiana first, which was insane. And then the next game on the road was Boston. And when we were in Boston, um, I go in the locker room where he was at and he's sitting there with a computer. And I said, and I, and I was talking to him, he goes, he says, Cheryl, you love what you do. And I said, yeah, I do. He goes, if you ever stop loving what you do, you have to quit. And I went, wow. And because he quit for 19 months. And so that put it, again, it put it in perspective, he, the, the mental challenges, the emotional challenges he had gone through during that period. And he was really enjoying, I've talked to a lot of people, uh, I, guy said he was with it in Birmingham and with the White Sox. He was enjoying that time down and he was really having a great time with the players doing something like that. And, and it was, it was like trying to live the dream that his father and him had because it, it, the reason why he played baseball as a kid because of his dad. So again, that, that connection there, the father and the son, he leaves right after he's, you know, dealing with his death and goes to play the game that his dad always wanted him to do. So it's, it's a puzzle that really fit for Michael, but people didn't understand it. And I think that's what's wrong with the, the history of Michael is not understanding the whys he did things. 
Sydney's frozen again. Is he frozen again? Oh boy, he's frozen again. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, there I'm, he is. Yeah, I'm here. Uh, you brought up the night. You brought up the '93, '94 season, Cheryl, and yeah. that was one of the uh, events that was highlighted in, in the Last Dance. So uh, you talked about Sc Scotty Pippen and the 1.8 second um, incident. Uh, he, he said that he was he was. Uh, uh, like I think that was reported. It was factual, but uh, take us to, uh, through your perspective uh, about the 1.8 second um, incident against the New York Knicks back in Game Three in '94. Yeah, I mean that was that was totally wrong on his part. There's no way that you know that that you you dismiss the fact that the player that could shoot that shot was going to get that shot and make that shot because he had done it, Tony Kukoc, um, and 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 to have I mean. And, and I'm glad that it was talked about Bill Cartwright's reaction because you're talking about a very stoic. I know Bill very well. He's a very stoic man. And to push that button, that, that, that button on him to make him so upset that that went throughout the whole team. And that's when Scotty realized that he messed up, but what the documentary didn't do, didn't show what happened with the last game with Hugh Hollins Blowing a call yeah. that should never have happened. That that's a that 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 would have that one. It would have put them in the in, in the NBA Finals, and two, it would have probably erased the 1.8 seconds a little bit. Not yeah. totally, but it would it would have diminished it a little bit had they won and gone on to the next series. So, you know, that's that's heartbreaking for the, the storytelling. But Scotty was not portrayed poorly in in the series. Not at all. There's a lot of things that could have been said about him that, that you know, that he probably wouldn't ha want to have revisited again. And so the fact that he's now appearing, but it's a sports talk show host that's saying that he's livid. We haven't heard Scotty say it yet, have we? No. No, ma'am. No. I don't I mean, know. He, no, go ahead. He, you know, he may be not happy that he, you know, wasn't treated with completely kid gloves to say that he's lived unless I want he could be I'd rather hear it from him right that type of emotion than having a sports talk show host saying what it was I want to ask you yeah, sure let's, let's focus it on the uh, no no oh. just no just real, just real quick I want to I want to know what was it like for you to cover Dennis Rodman <laughs> I mean like a larger than life figure would be an understatement we know about they they delve into like the infamous you know biggest trip where Jordan had to go. Had to go get him. Michael did not go to Vegas to get him. That's a, that was a total fabrication in, in the series. Ah, okay. It was downtown Chicago that he got him. It wasn't in ah. Vegas. Ah, okay. Well, let's hit. Let's. Unfortunately, facts don't don't always <laughs> get to be out there. Um, Dennis was. Uh, I'm. I liked him. When they, but it was interesting because you know we all knew he had him and the Bulls and what he did with Pippen and stuff like that it wasn't going very well, right? <laughs> the way that they, that they attacked each other. And what was interesting is, is uh, the fact that, that Jerry Krause and Phil, Phil Jackson had a meeting with Scotty, with Michael, saying, can you play with Dennis Rodman? And if we do acquire him, will you be the ones that will kind of like be the bridge between the players and him? That was they. They were asked to do that, and they both said yeah because they realized once they didn't have a Horace Grant, you know, 
because they, they saw that when they played Orlando, they didn't have anybody strong enough, you know, play the power forward, that they needed a power forward of that ilk. And so it was perfect. So his first practice at the Birdo, I, you know, I didn't know his, his tendencies. You never know what a player does post a practice until you know, the first time you go through it. So I'm waiting for him a real long time. I'm waiting for him, and I'm the only one still in the, in the little one area of, of, the, of the Birdo. Everyone else was in the media room, and I'm waiting him out. And John Lignowski, he's the, the equipment manager. He goes, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get Dennis for you. I'm gonna work. So he goes over to Dennis, and Dennis is not that far away. I can hear him. He goes, hey, Dennis, that's Cheryl Ray, because I didn't have sound at that time. Cheryl Ray's over there, and, and uh, her sister's a tattooist. You, you may want to talk to her. Dennis came and talked to me. My sister, my sister, my late sister was a tattooist out of Orlando. And so he came down, gave me an interview, gave me a long interview and stuff like that. It was really thought provoking and finished that. And he didn't like, he did not do post game at home. He only did post game on the road and people would get, you know, all crazy, but, but that was his, that was his thing. That's what he wanted to do. And, 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 you know, and again, it's, you know, it's, it's unfortunate you have people that didn't know in the documentary series that weren't around all the time that didn't know his idiosyncrasies. But my favorite thing was of that first season with him, 96, 90, um, 95, 96 is when they're going towards that historic win mark and we're in Cleveland. And, and the Bulls blew out the Cavs. It was win number 69. So I'm there. And to understand, the locker rooms of, of the visiting teams are kind of like being in a closet. They're very, very small. The stadium was small for both the home and the visiting team. So they open it up. And, and there's people from Cleveland that don't know Dennis at all. Or, and he's playing this profanity-laden music. And he's got the gimp mask from Pulp Fiction. The zipper. <laughs> zipper. Oh, wow. So I go, okay. So I walk up to him. I'm just standing there. And, and you can see his head tilts up. And he unzips the mask, turns down the music. He goes, what do you need? I, I ended up doing a one-on-one. And the, the rest of the people just stuck their microphones or their tape recorders in. And I, and I didn't, you know, I finished with him. He gets the mask, puts it back on, turns on the music. And I went, okay, that's Dennis. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, wow. Dennis Rahman was an entertainment um, chauffeur, as, you, as, as, we, as we say. <laughs> um, during the 96 yeah. season, Cheryl, uh, during the uh, game six of the finals, uh, it was on five this day against the Sonics. Michael Jordan uh, um, talked about how um, this was his first title that he won without – his father, of course, we saw the emotion yeah. uh, during the during the uh, the locker room celebration after the game. Talk to us about that from your perspective. I know you talked about the re, uh, about your relationship with Jordan's dad. Uh, talk to, uh, talk about how um, Michael was feeling on that day um, following that uh, at that time the fourth NBA title. I, I think, like he always did, but it was even more so. It was every fiber of his body was transformed transfixed on winning but the loss was just as great you know winning was really important to him i mean winning but but the the loss of his father was equal as far as intensity and and as far as the emotion and so it was a difficult time 
for him. He never liked talking about it either. That was something he, you know, he just wasn't, didn't feel comfortable, but you at times could, could address things with him about his dad, but everybody knew what that meant. And they have it on Father's Day. I mean, it was just, it was just an unbelievable moment in time. You had the best record ever. You had, you know, Michael Jordan re regaining his prominence in the league. You win the championship, but you've got a piece of you missing. Your dad's not there. So it, it, was, it was heartbreaking, yet happy. You know, it was, it was a very mixed emotions with that. And, and I, I, I don't, you know, I give, I give him a lot of credit because he was able to do things that some people could never have been able to accomplish after what he went through. And he did it. Definitely, definitely bittersweet all around um let's talk a little bit about you know these these next few minutes before we wrap up our part one of the, our zoom style with the wonderful wbez sports reporter cheryl ray stout um let's talk about horace grant for a second because he <laughs> talk about someone who's not very happy about how he he's been portrayed during the last dance what was horace like what was it like covering horace grant i loved horace grant Horace Grant was so honest that I don't think he realized sometimes he shouldn't have said the things that he said. That may sound weird, but, but and, and a lot of media knew how to get him to say things. And, 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 and I believe I, he was not the one that there was the snitch with Sam Smith. However, Sam Smith probably got him to say things and, 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 and Horace didn't know that was going to be on the record in the book. That's my, that's my true belief on that. Because Horace was an open book. Right. You could ask Horace anything and he would tell you anything. You know, that's the type of guy he was, but he, it wasn't ever mean spirited. It was always what, you know, his truths and stuff like that. So Horace, oh, he wears hard on his sleeve. He was easy to deal with. He was, he was, I think one of the hardest working players I've ever watched on any sport, you know, I mean, he, and the thing is his knees were really wrecked and his knees were really screwed up. You, you would see him after game, just, you know, the, the ice on his knees, you know, he was, you know, players usually have them off by you get by the time you get in the locker room. He was really in a lot of pain. I, I was amazed that he was able to play and he played a lot of minutes. Michael Scotty and Horace played almost 40 minutes a game. I mean, that's, think about that. We'll talk about load management now. Those guys did that and won championships and they did it, you know, for, for, for a few years like that. But, but Horace, uh, I, I, I just think that he misunderstood some of it, but I also think that he doesn't realize that he probably gave information, but didn't realize he did. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. Cindy, are you, Cindy, you're back with us? Oh, again with the uh, the issue with the Wi-Fi, uh, the wrapping things up here. Now, what about Steve Kerr? What was he like? Because he he was kind of like a central figure in those last couple of parts of the Last Dance. I think I think they made him a central part because of who he is now. Yeah. I mean, and 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 so and and, and because and again, I think this was storytelling. You know, I think and 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 he has a great unfortunate story that you could align up with Michael. I mean, I, I, 
I, but I always found him really fun to deal with and, and a great, a great, uh, uh, he was also very smart with the media. He also was, he was very um, easy to talk to. I got to know his wife, Margot. She was sitting next to me in press row and she's just, you know, and, and the two of them were just terrific people to be around. Um, he, you know, he was not the best player on the court, but he was one of the best teammates on that team on, on the court. And so, and, and you could see that, you, you know, yeah, he won games with them and stuff like, but he also, he under, he always understood his role and he never, never, he never complained. I never heard Steve Kerr ever complain about everything. A lot of other players, yes, but never him. And that's what, you know, again, you could appreciate that. And that's probably why he's making a good head coach is because a lot of times it's, it's your role players that have had to study the game and it doesn't come naturally like it does for a Scotty or, you know, Michael Jordan or, or a player like that or Steph Curry. But if you have to study the game, then, it's, then you incur all sorts of ability to be a coach of the game. And I think that's why I think that's why they probably wanted him in, in the in the in the documentary. Okay, wrapping things up here for at least for the first hour with Cheryl. Uh, Cheryl, uh, the way near the end when Michael was sort of around all the you saw like helping helping out security guards who worked at the at the UC and you know didn't really hang out too much with his teammates. Is that a fair portrayal of what really happened? Yes. Um, he had a few, like I mentioned, Rod Higgins, he had a few teammates, but, but he also, what they didn't show and was interesting was until the last frame, I know that he had a group of friends from North Carolina, from high school and college that would be around. And Rodney, Fred, and I think Adolf was, those are the three, three of the guys. There was a, there was a group of guys that he had around him. The security guards were also they were uh, gang uh, detectives, narcotics detectives. They were, they were tough guys, and they were they were originally hired by the United Center and the Bulls, not you know Michael. And and then they 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 kind of transitioned over to help Michael. So, but I thought there was because none of Michael's best friends were interviewed for the documentary. George was his personal um, assistant who picked him up at the airport from the beginning and, and he's now retired and he lives right down the road from him. I see, you know, George comes to the night center and we still talk because, and he tells me what's going on with Michael at that time. But, but the thing is, is, um, I would, that's, that surprised me because I, those guys know Michael even better than, than a lot of people and they did not get interviewed. So I, I'm, I'm very curious as why not, but he was never, uh, as far as players go, there was a few, but not many. And, and so there was a separation, but it was sometimes on the players designed to do that, not Michael's, you know, and again, he had that first beginning with them, which was kind of rough with, with players. And then he, and I think that probably why he developed that because, you know, that first team was really difficult for him. So he had to be selective. So when he hooked up with Rod Higgins as being his friend and the other one was Daryl Walker was, was his friend too. Mm -hmm. So he had a couple of real good friends and then the rest were, they were teammates. As long as there was, you know, that they were going to win on the court, that's what mattered to him. All right. One more question before we wrap up this part of the, the show here. Do you think the Bulls could have won eight in a row if Jordan hadn't taken those two years off? You know, 
No, the, the thing is, I think in after the 93 season and after the, the 98 season, I think they, it would have been very hard for them to repeat the next year. There, there was an emotional, uh, physically, but, but emotionally, they were really spent. Because it's not just, you know, it's not, it's when you, when you play in the NBA in the finals, you, you, you go into June. Right. And then you start camp again in, in, in you know, in October, early October. Yep. So you really, the downtime is very, very minimal. And so every time you, you, you try to win the next year, it gets harder and harder and harder. And I really don't, I don't think they would have won. I, I, you know, you never know, but I think it would have been very difficult for them to win either after the first retirement of Michael or after the breakup, especially after the breakup. I think it was really, would have been really difficult because of the age of the team. I was just going to say, I, I tell people this all the time, Cheryl, that that would have been very, yes, it was a shortened <coughs> season that last, that, that, that season, you know, after the, the third. Yeah, 50 games. Yeah. yeah. So, and remember, people forget Jordan actually cut his finger on a cigar really bad and he would have missed yep. about half that season. So that would have been very hard for them to repeat it. You know, like you said, the, the, the guys were a year older, so it would, it would have been very difficult, even with a shortened season. And, and and I think that they had they were finished with Dennis, right? Dennis, I mean, it was he he really he pushed the envelope too far. And I think once he did what all the things he did, and and Phil, now Jerry Krause did a lot of crazy things and said a lot of stupid things, but Phil was the one that really implement, implemented the fact that he was leaving. That was him more than it was Jerry Krause, and that's something that should be a little more underlined when they talk about that last season. Do you do you think do you think that Jerry Krause was portrayed fairly in the uh, in the doc? Um, it was okay. I mean, I I'm not a I'm not a fan of him personally. Um, he said things and did things with me that you know I I won't forget. But I've always you always have to be able to to separate um, personal issues when you're a reporter right. with professional issues. And so I've always been able to do that. And, and I will give him credit for a lot of things that he did right. And he did a lot of things right with, with players, stuff like that. But he had very poor people skills. And, and it, it did come out on that. And, you know, that, that, that's, you know, it, but when someone's dead, it's very hard, you know, it's, right. it, 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 you're always questioning, is it right or wrong? I think you would have to ask Thelma Krause what she thought his, his late, his, you know, his wife. And so I, I don't know. I, I think there could have been more about him, but you know. Oh, there's Sid. Yeah, so analogy is nothing to play with, but hopefully I'm here to stay and stay for good. Cheryl, uh, uh, as we go back to, to uh, one of the um, Bulls rivalries of the New York Knicks, another thing they didn't bring up during the documentary was uh, it was during a regular season game in January of 97, when at that time, Knicks head coach Jeff Van Gundy called Michael Jordan a con artist. Of course, the Bulls barely won the game, but Jordan had a personal message to send of scoring 51 points. What do you remember about that game? I, 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 I don't know. <laughs> I'm just trying, yeah. I've seen so many games. I mean, 51 for Michael, you know, nothing. Think about him. If you're mentioning a specific game, is he not that he needed any motivation? But if you gave him extra old motivation, you knew he was going to score forty or fifty points. Just like if you, when he's ill, you knew that he was going. It's like oh, he's got 101 fever. Ah, he'll score fifty, and he would. 
and, and yep. that's the thing about that. And 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 Michael liked having liked having somebody that was was his not I don't know if say enemy, but to have a you know have somebody that a foil, yeah. you know, like having that foil, and it was like okay, it's Jeff Van Gundy, mm-hmm. it'll be him, or it'd be a player, or it'd be a teammate, whatever it was. He he liked it was like like a game in his mind that he had to play, and so it was Jeff Van Gundy for that game and fifty one points, okay. <laughs> <laughs> like it was nothing. Like it was nothing. You know, you know after games though, when Michael you would go in, like like I said about Doug Hound, but with Michael, the sweat, he just, I mean, he again you would see the physical toll after a game. And I was always amazed at, at how much he put into a game. Then you'd see him the next day at a practice and he was completely rejuvenated. That always really impressed me. You never saw him tired the next day, even though you saw him after a game and you go, boy, how does he do it? How does anybody do it? Any player, but you know, when he did, it was like, it was amazing. Cheryl Ray Stout of WBZ FM joining us here on Second City Sports Zoom style. Cheryl, let's uh, talk about, uh, if, if you mentioned it before, I apologize because I was away, but uh, talk about Michael Jordan's relationship with Charles Oakley. Of course, Oakley was traded for Bill Carberry in the <laughs> oh, summer of 88. Well, the thing is when um, that was Jerry Krause's first draft pick and he, he you know, Jerry Krause really loved Charles Oakley and Michael and that's what, you know, that, again, that, that, that was surprised me that they didn't bring this up. Michael really, really cared for Charles Oakley. And I, I, I remiss that I mentioned that earlier, that how, how much he really loved Charles Oakley. Because he also, also knew that Charles was valuable to him. That he, you know, he was going to be his, one of his defenders, you know, on the court, especially when things get physical. And what, what Michael did, um, it was not, not the the foot break year, but the following year, it would be the 87 All-Star Game. He brought Charles Oakley with him. He wasn't voted in or anything like that. And this is before they, they, they had the, right. you know, the uh, Rising Stars game. But he brought Charles Oakley with him to the All-Star Game. And he, and he said to him, I want you to want to be an All-Star. And so I want you to be, see all, all the things that happen if you make yourself an All-Star. And that says an awful lot because he was trying to give him goals, you know, have him reach things. And Charles was, you know, Charles was, he loved Michael and Michael loved him. And it, and it was kind of interesting. He ended up being with the Knicks, of course, you know, and then they have their battles on the court. But um, Oak was, uh, was, was somebody that was really important to Michael because again, he was, he was, he was the next player taken after Michael. Right. And so they had some, you know, they have a, something in common there. And, and the fact is that, you know, uh, Charles came from a very small school, very, you know, Virginia Union, nobody knew Virginia Union. Mm-hmm. And so you had, a, you had a small school player that ended up being part of the process of, of helping the Bulls get along to be a winner. But of course, it was, necess- it was a necessity for him to be traded for, Char- for Bill Cartwright because you needed to have that man in the middle in order for them to do the triangle offense, but also the defensive uh, aptitude that Bill Cartwright had and Horace Grant's rise to become the player he did, allowed them to trade uh, Oakley. And uh, Jerry Krause hated making that trade. 
I think of all the trades he made, he hated making that one because he loved, he really loved Charles Oakley for a man that didn't show a lot of emotion for a lot of people, but he did show emotion for Charles Oakley. Nakina? Um, I just want I just want to ask uh, another question about uh, <clears throat> oh I got so many more for you Cheryl um okay well about what about his relationship with B J Armstrong because yeah they got into like those those middle those middle uh, parts how what what their relationship is like being in the same you know in the guard position together what's what was his relationship with B J and how uh, how was it covering B J um B J his friend was actually Stacy King on the team. The first, you know, that was that was his friend. Uh, BJ was uh, was interesting because he didn't have a lot in common with players. He was an only child. His he grew up, you know, he went to uh, a, a private schools, private Catholic schools. His, I think his dad was a mailman, and his mother had she had MS. So there was a, you know, he had, a, he had a different, you know, his upbringing was different. And, and I think, you know, again, you, you, cause sometimes you, you have these kind of like sheltered life beginnings and then all of a sudden you're, you know, you, you go into something that's really big and powerful. So he, and he also was not the starter from the beginning. It was John Pepper and BJ was slowly, you know, put into that and became the starter at the last, in, in the 90. Uh, 293 season became the starter so but BJ was he was an interesting guy and, and I think he learned that he couldn't be he was kind of a selfish type player he only cared about his stats and then then he I think he, after they won I think that's when he had to start changing his tune and he's a smart smart man he, he was a very very smart man and and he was he always had an idea about the business of the game which I, which was pretty interesting compared to a lot of players though but he was very much into the business and he was he went into the front office for a while and it was between him and John Paxson who was going to get the job as general manager after Jerry Krause and it went to went to John Paxson and so then he left on his own and went on to his own business so I, I think there was a lot of growth with him and and that happens with a lot of guys and I think he, he in particular had to grow and mature as as you know as a, as a player and then as his post-career Let's focus in on those last two championship uh, seasons, Cheryl, 97 and 98. Uh, of course, the Bulls defeated the Utah Jazz uh, both, in six, uh, both in six games. What was the atmosphere like covering the, the NBA Finals in Utah, in, in Salt Lake City in particular? Salt Lake's an interesting – have you ever been to Salt Lake? No. No. <laughs> I've had the pleasure. It's very white. I mean, very white. <laughs> Say, say no more. <laughs> okay. Um, and it, 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 it is. It really is. Uh, it's not my particular cup of tea. It's a pretty city. But those fans were pretty rabid. And those teams, you know, those teams with Carl Malone and John Stockton and Hornacek, you know, those players were, were really, you know, very formidable team. But I think the Bulls moxie and I think their gamesmanship especially with Dennis with uh Carl Malone believe me he did stuff to Carl Malone that trust me got into his head big time <laughs> and I think that, oh yeah and and so we, I think that's why they never got over the hump being able to beat the Bulls because the Bulls just were even though they were beat up 
they were tired, but they had that pedigree. And that pedigree was really strong. And it wasn't going, you know, wasn't going to be deterred by a team that just didn't have enough uh, to go against the Bulls, period. But that last championship that, you know, in Utah, when Michael made that final shot over Russell, I, you know, because that was a very, very loud, I'll give him credit, man. That's a very loud arena. That was the most silent of a big arena, Delta Center, dead silence. And it was really very interesting. It was almost like eerie, you know, was that quiet, that fast. Yeah. And, and it stayed that way. You know, it just stayed. It, there was just this, and, and then in the locker room, the Bulls were very celebratory. But it was very final. You knew that this was it. This was it, that this, there's nothing going to happen. And when I mentioned that, you know, Michael had friends that wasn't talked to the documentary, one of them took their cap off, they got with the champion, and they threw it to me and gave it to me, which I appreciate. So I finished up in the locker room, and then I was walking past the, uh, the NBA court, and Dan Rohn from Channel 9 was cutting down the net where Michael took his last shot and have some of that net. So then I walked out and I'm going and and the the the, the uh, stadium workers were taking down the big NBA Finals banners, and I and they're unhappy. This is the second year in a row, of course, they lose to the Bulls, and you know, and I and they were supposed to pack them up and send them back to the NBA. And I said to the guy, I said, "Hey, if I give you ten bucks, would you give me one of those?" He gives me the banner. I give him ten bucks. I said, "If I give you another ten, would you give me another one?" He said, "Yeah." And they, gave the other one to Les Grobstein. So I got my little souvenir. <laughs> oh, wow. That's very cool. That's, I love that. Yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, I mean, I mean just, just to finish up the, those, champion, those championship games, uh, you saw that those Scott Burrell, Scott Burrell, oh my God, that, that, poor, that poor guy. I mean, he's coaching now. <laughs> but uh, I mean, what was that like? Because he was kind of like the – Sort of like the brunt got the brunt, like a lot of you know Jordan's teasing and and whatnot. So, but but we all saw that you know there was good reason for it. So, right, Michael Michael knew how to take somebody that hadn't won and turn them into a winner. I mean, that sounds weird, but sometimes you had sometimes sometimes that's what he had to do because Michael knew, especially because of Scotty's injury. Scotty's injury was was really you know, that, that was a tough injury for them to, to deal with, you know, and, and you had Tony Kukoc, but, but again, it was an older team. And then you get, get this young blood who has to learn how to win. And that's what Michael had to do. And, and, and I think, again, with time, Scott, of course, realizes, you know what, he, I had to go through that. You know, it's kind of like going through an initiation, right? You, you got to be initiated into learning how to do the things to make you win because, a lot of players, when they've, when they've played with, with the teams that, that are horrible, they don't know how to win. And one of the things that's difficult for any team that's rebuilding is when you come to the point when, when you're, you've got to have that mentality to know how to win. And if you never win, you kind of like, okay, you shrug your shoulders, you go, okay, I go to practice. Okay, but you don't have the mentality of being a winner. And I think that's what Michael did with Scott Burrell. And Scott Burrell has talked about it the last few weeks that that's what helped him become, he, he has a ring. He wouldn't have had a ring. He'd stay where he was at in Golden State unless he fast forward a few years. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. Uh, 
Yeah, there's been a big debate uh, after the airing of the documentary. Uh, of course, Michael Jordan left it open at the end, saying that uh, if given the opportunity, they would have won a seventh NBA championship. As a fan, I believe that they would have had opportunity to do it for a long time until the last few years. People again, we talked about this via Twitter the other day, looking at that. Michael Jordan cut his finger uh, messing with a cigar, and Pippen yeah. had his bad back injury and things along that line. I wanted to ask Cheryl, uh, realistically, do you think that the, the Bulls would have won a seventh NBA championship or what was it, or the '98 NBA Finals? Was it the the, the uh, was it the right time to break up that team? I, I, I don't think they would have won. We, we, just, we discussed this a little earlier. I don't think they would have won. I think it would have been very, very difficult. But I think they should have had the opportunity to try to win. That's different. It's different. I think you, you give them the opportunity. But I don't, think, I don't think that they physically, mentally, Michael's injury, Scotty was going to get paid. You know, like the only way he was going to get the big money because of, of the contract issues that he would have to be traded somewhere, assigned a trade is what they did with him with Houston. Then he got, ended up being traded to Portland. And, and so when you look at that, Luke Longley, you know, he was at the end. Dennis was a free agent. They were not going to have him back. He was, he was off the rails. He had gone off the rails in that last year more than he had at any time. I mean, you're talking about somebody that got more and more and more into his persona instead of being a player. So there's too many things. Again, with that said, I don't think they would have won, but I think they should have had the opportunity to still defend the title. How much, how, how much of a blame do you think Jerry Reinsdorf deserves and kind of like some would say the dismantling of the, the team, if you will? I think Jerry has to have some of it because um, he, of course, was the one that could have made that final decision. The interesting thing with Jerry, this is what some people don't know, understand, is that he had a different mindset with the Bulls than he had with the White, has with the White Sox. The White Sox was the one that he put invested everything in. That's his, that's his investment. The Bulls just happened to come along at the right time for him and just happened to have the greatest player. You know, he buys the Bulls for $21 million, okay? And he gets Michael Jordan in the process of, you know, being part of that. So that was, that's good fortune. But, but to him, that was more of a, a, a business for investment. And the White Sox have been his personal investment. So I think he looked at it, those two things differently. He could have made things different, definitely. He could have stopped Jerry Krause. But again, Phil Jackson was not coming back, not just because, just because of what Jerry Krause said, because Phil had other things going on. And he was, he was, he had talked about it to a lot of people I know that said he wasn't coming back. So I think Phil, who didn't get any of the blame, shares some of it too. But Jerry, the two Jerry's, most of it. But I think Phil Jackson has to say, hey, you know what? You, 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 you talked to people that said you weren't coming back too. So, you know, he, he comes out right. unscathed, which I, I think, you know, come on. How do you, yeah, how do you feel about that? That he kind of like is sort of the good guy in this, if you. And, and, you know, if that's what they, I mean, again, that's a story. It's a story and, and, and nobody's perfect and they made him try to sound perfect. And I'm going, you know, there, there's a lot of flaws that was with him and they were, they had no problem showing the flaws of Michael and Scotty, but Phil came out completely unscathed. And I thought that was a little interesting. I'll leave it at that. (laughs) 
Okay, uh, I gotcha. Uh, I mean, what about, uh, uh, I mean, what, what was like covering Carl Malone? Because that, that, yeah, that was like, he, there was like a video that went viral about how he really felt about Michael Jordan and the polls, but well, what was it like, you know, covering Carl Malone? Um, you know, not knowing his backstory then that I do now, uh, I, I thought, I mean, I, I just, you know, cause I, I was a real student of the game for, for college. And I thought, boy, this guy, you know, he's something else, you know, as far as physically and stuff like that. But I think, um, I don't, I just don't know if he had a winner's mind. You know, I just don't, I just don't know, you know, because they, they, they should have won more than they did. They, he had a lot of talent. Um, and, and the thing is, is that he allowed Dennis Rodman to get in his head period. And, and that, that took away his physical presence. When, some, when, when Dennis got into his head, his physical presence suffered. And that, and that was a trade-off with him. And, and I think that's unfortunate for his, his player. But, you know, he's, he was a great player, not a great person. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. I guess I <laughs> will leave it that there. Um, share your, also share your memories of Jerry Slow, because sadly he passed away earlier this morning. You know, of course, coached the Utah Jazz for many years, you know, those last two championships the Bulls ended up beating them for, but also he was a big sort of like celebrity here in Chicago, you know, part oh, yeah. of those 70s Bulls teams with Norm Van Leer, you know, God rest his soul as well. Tell us what, tell us what Jerry Sloan was like. Well, Jerry Sloan is the original Bull. They were putting the franchise together. He was the, uh, they they were able to pluck him from Baltimore, so he was the he was the first bull player ever to be a bull. He was also the first Bulls player to ever have his number and number four retired. On the court, he and Norm Van Leer, and Chet Walker, and Bob Love, and Tom Borwinkle were the toughest SOBs out there. And he didn't he was relentless. He they 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 were they were somebody that was tough very well sold in their game. He grew up on a farm in Southern Illinois, the last of 10 kids. His dad died when he was four years old. So he worked the farm as, as a kid. He ended up going to University of Evansville and he played there and they won a division two titles there. Uh, he gets drafted in the fourth round by, ba by Baltimore and ends up with the bull and having his career with the bulls was, was really his, his, his staple. And he ended up, he was one of the Bulls coaches in the late seventies for a couple of years. And then after that, you know, he almost, he almost went back to Evansville to be the, the coach there in 77 when that was the year that the whole team was killed in a, in a plane crash. He did not take the job. So, I mean, he, he's got this, he had this interesting, he was a very man. He's just a, a common man, very authentic, very genuine, um, and, and I think you, you would probably easily say he was one of the most respected players and coaches in the league. Usually there's not both, but he was, he was respected as a player and really respected as a coach too. And, you know, he's, he's very iconic in a lot of ways, but, but he wasn't, he wasn't an, you know, like an extrovert where, you know, but he was, he, he had, he was a staple of what a good man who had a great career, one of the best coaches ever, never won a championship as a head coach, but you know, you can't, you can't, 
I mean, that you know, Patrick Ewing never won, and he's one of the greatest players ever played. So you never always win the championship because it takes other things to make it. But but there's a lot of good about Jerry Sloan, and it and it's sad. I mean, because he he died of a, a, a Parkinson's disease with Louis uh, syndrome, and my father-in-law had that, and that's a real rough ending, real tough. But uh, he will be remembered as being a Chicago Bull probably for a long time. And, and, I, and the trouble is when people played in the 70s, the generation now doesn't, does, had never saw him. So they don't know what type of player he was. But he, Norm Van Leer, and I knew Norm. I worked with Norm. Boy, those, those, those were tough. They were, they were as tough as the Pistons were and maybe even better than the Pistons were because they did it cleanly. <laughs> Big difference. <laughs> I couldn't agree with you more, Cheryl. I know Norv Van Leer uh, mentioned that uh, whenever he did radio and TV, you will know firsthand. But uh, one of the other players that are featured in the documentary was uh, Ron Harper, but he was featured very little. Uh, if you had a re relationship with him, uh, tell us more about Ron Harper, not just the player, but Ron Harper, the person, uh, during those uh, last three Bulls championship seasons. I loved Ron Harper. I think... You know, um, when when I was uh, I was doing some work, and when I was in MQ Radio, I was also ghostwriting for Dick Vitale. And when Ron Harper was in college, he named him Baby Jordan because that's how great he was as a, a scorer in college. And when he got drafted by the Clippers, he was you know he was a rising offensive player. And then he had the horrible knee injuries, both his knees had to be, you know, had to be, had surgery on both the knees. So he was never, he never jump anymore like he used to. So what he did, he recreated himself to be a defender. And when he, when he, by the time he got to the Bulls, of course, you know, we're talking about on the back end of his career, um, what, what people probably, if they've, they've listened to him, is he, he had a very um, difficult stuttering problem. But what I appreciate about him, despite those issues, because I've had players that had stutters and they wouldn't talk to you or, you know, and, and, and I understand that. I totally, especially with radio, with print, it's one thing because, you know, they know, it, you know, it's just being copied, but with radio or TV, they know that people could hear it. And so sometimes they don't want to talk, never stopped run. He was always available to talk to. He would, he was, he always was pleasant but the fact is that he did, did that he never allowed his his situation ever stop him from helping me because you're helping me when you talk to me after a game you know everyone's oh that they owe it to you know it's it it helps and i look at it that way and so i i i really appreciated him and he was a good he was another one of those guys like Steve Kerr a great teammate you know he was and his defensive skills again he was supposed to be this big offensive star and because of his injuries, he developed them. And that I love when a player does that. You 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 take you take the badness that happened to you and you make something even better. And that's what he did. He ended up with championships with the Bulls and with the Lakers. Probably should should have been featured more in a documentary. I totally agree. But I, I but I think I think because of I think it's because of his stuttering. Yeah, yeah, you might be right. All right. Because what I, used to, what, what, what I used to do, because I could with radio, um, when he talked to me, and I knew when he stuttered, it was usually at the front end of what he said, and I could cue past it. Nobody knew he was stuttering when I, when, when I aired, because I could cue past it and I could get the answer, not taking anything out of context. Yeah. 
There you go. Now, what do you now what do you think about like some of the other utility players that were not featured much? You know, Bill Wellington, Judd Bushler, the late Jack Haley. I mean, do you feel like you know what was it like to covering those guys? Do you feel like they should have been featured more? I don't know. Um, I think they. I think they all were part of it, and so they should be. They should have touched on instead of just just interview. Well, Jack Haley, of course, died. He's he died of a heart attack very young, um, and and Jack was Jack was originally a Bulls draft pick. Yeah. People don't remember that he was a Bulls draft pick in '88, and and very jovial guy, and he was one of the people that could get into Dennis to get him, you know, to understand what he could and couldn't do and stuff like that. And he was a real good teammate too. And, and Judd Bushler, Judd Bushler, you know, he's an assistant coach now with the, with the Knicks, you know? And, and so Judd, Judd's a, Judd, again, he was a, a role player in the way he's doing. And, and the, a player that I think, and, and you mentioned Bill Wennington, but a player, and they, they talked about him and they said, okay, but Tony Kukoc to me, yeah. what he went through and how he dealt with it, and I recently, I saw uh, Tony just before the season uh, was, was stopped and we were at the United Center and, um, and I was talking to him. I, this was actually before the All-Star game. I said, I said, Tony, I said, if I were you, I would do every interview you can when the All-Star game's here. I said, because you deserve to be in the Hall of Fame. And I said, if you went to the Hall of Fame, I said, you need to cultivate that. Unfortunately, that's the way it goes. Because you really look at his numbers, what he did in Europe and here he belongs in the hall of fame you know what he said to me he said i don't think it's just me i think the whole full team of the 95 96 team, that whole team should be in the hall of fame and i thought that was, like, that's a great answer you know that, that tells you how much he feels about his team you know and i don't know many players that would say that and i and i go you know what that's pretty cool well and then and, and he earned their respect too i think that that that's what helped a lot was that Tony earned MJ and Scotty's respect because we all saw what happened during the 90s. And, he, and he, did, he didn't deserve that. He did not deserve no, what they did to him. That was childish. That's something you do in grammar school. You know, that, it was so petty. I mean, it's, it, it was bullying, you know, in, in a way what they did. It was just very petty. But, but see, but Jerry Krause created that. And they hated him so much that they took on him and, and 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 I and I never feel I never felt comfortable about that. That that made me feel uncomfortable because it was like it was totally it wasn't his fault, you know. And 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 that that should never have happened. Do you feel like maybe Tony should have gotten more of his due in that in that in that doc? Because I feel like he should have been featured. Even, he then I delve into his background, but the, he kind of felt like he, he should have been featured more. Won games for he won games for them in the finals. I mean, he had he had games where he, you know, he won a, he won the third quarter of one of the finals games, right? Because they were down, and he he got. I mean, there's things like that. That yes, it, it, the thing is, they called it the last dance, and it turned out to be it should have said Michael Jordan's last dance. Yeah, and and and, and Michael is the is was the centerpiece, which is again, it's fine, but it should have been labeled as such because these all these parts have been. I'm talking about wasn't wasn't highlighted wasn't part of it and so it's kind of a misnomer to call it the last dance when it really is was you know okay say what it is the last dance of michael jordan or the michael jordan's last dance yeah sydney yeah um, another role player though that wasn't featured in a documentary that was luke lonely he was 
because not the yeah. first player to come from Australia to play in the NBA. Uh, some of your relationship with Luke Longley for our audience. Luke was one of the coolest dudes to ever be around. Nothing bothered him for us. Now, more than likely it happened on the court and stuff like that. He would, but you talk to people, he'd go, you know, say, hey, you know, talk to you. No worries, no worries. Hey, mate, how you doing? You know, it was, his Australianism <laughs> came through. And he worked hard. I mean, that's how, you know, he, he had that one accident, and I think it was surfing that he had an accident. And so he had some injury issues because of that. But he was, he was very, that group of Bill Wennington and Luke Longley and Steve Kerr and a couple of other, they used to hang out all the time. And Dennis Rodman would join him too. Dennis was part of that little group of those guys. They'd go out. I was in Miami, and in, in, um, that was the uh, 93, uh, no, excuse me, the 90, 90, 96 championship, and they were in Miami, and I, they, they put me in the same hotel as the Bulls, which I, I never wanted. To, I never, ever, ever liked to be in the same hotel as teams. And I was working real late. I, I started at 6 a.m. in the morning and would finish at 1. And I went to get something to eat. I finished it, it was like 12, no, it was one o'clock and I went to get something to eat and I'm coming back. Those guys are just getting into the limousine to go party. And I went, <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> Dennis is going, come on with us. I'm going, no, <laughs> no, I'm going to my room. I'm hiding. So I would hide from them. But they, they, they enjoyed themselves. They enjoyed being around each other, you know, and, 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 and Luke was really, he was really warm, really very kind, and and there was something something not childlike, but something joyful. I think is a better word for it. I think it's very something very joyful being around him. Yeah, I mean, he he seems like very like very soft spoken guy, and I think from what I read that he actually declined to be interviewed. From what I'm thinking, I'm not I'm not really sure if, if they were that he was asked, but uh, I mean. I think she, I like you said. I think he probably should have been featured more because he was a big part of that, especially those last three championships. Yeah, and 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 he he was somebody that uh, was very, um, very gracious to everybody around him. Former teammates, you know, wherever he went, young young players, he was he was very good. He was just you know he was he's somebody that. You know, when he, when he, I, I was, I was sad that when he left, because, you know, when, you, when you're around people like him, where it's upbeat and, and the, a lot of these guys, Ron Harper, Steve Kerr, you know, um, Luke Longley, Judd Bushler, they would say, what do you need? Doesn't happen anymore. You know, player, is there, do you need something? Do you, do you need to talk to me? Nowadays, you, the players aren't available to you. Oh. And, and those, that group. Well, Michael, I talk to all the time. I, I talk to him all the time. I had never fun. But I'm talking about a lot of these, these players would say, do you need anything? And, and that's, you don't forget that. You're, you, it always will give me a, you know, a good positive thing you know, mind, in my mind. Sydney? Oh, he, he keeps going in and out. Uh, uh, <laughs> a few more minutes with WBEZ's <laughs> sports, sports reporter, Cheryl Race, out here on Second City Sports, Zoom style. Uh, let, let's let's fast forward a little bit to the current Bulls because there are a lot of changes made, you know, about, you know, in the front mm -hmm. office, Arturis Karnischewicz is now president of basketball operations, Mark Eversley making history there. He's new GM. Um, 
and whatnot. What do you think the mindset is of these deal? Not just the Cubs and Watch, but also the entire MLB. And also, what do you think about the whole labor dispute going on, the infighting that we're seeing in public? Well, this is this could make or break that league. Who, who, you know, it, it's a shame because they have good young players, you know, and, and attractive players, and they, they they just they're still kind of a conservative, you know, outlet. They. They, they haven't been appealing to the African-Americans, which is something that they should figure out. If I were them, I'd hire Curtis Granderson in the, you know, into MLB's front office right away because he's somebody that definitely could do something about that and is very well-versed about how to change it. But I, I, I think it's so hard for any of the leagues. They're all going through this. How can we do the season safely? And... And a lot of players, and, and, and we, the, the MLB, you know, there's a lot of stuff with the money thing, but how do you start a season? How do you get going again? And if you do have somebody that comes positive or more than one, do you shut it down? What do you do? Do you go into quarantine? Can you do it? Because remember, baseball, and let me see, the money for them is the tickets, and they're not going to have fans there. So there's a money issue there. The interesting thing about the the league right now, because the, the owner, excuse me, the, the the union always had the upper hand pretty much, but and originally the, the contract was supposed to be for this season, the way the way it ended uh, in March, was that they would prorate the players' money for games that weren't played. Now the owners said, "We'll do fifty fifty. Well, without gate receipts. That 50 50 is going to be really paltry compared to what they would have made by losing games. So there's that issue. But for the players, if they do the 50 50, they have to have the owners open up their books. And once they open up their books, they can find out what's, if they give them the real books, the right books, what is the real money they haven't made that we weren't making? The, other, the only problem. So, so that's the one side. But the other side of that, if you do the 50-50 then, and, and open the books, then the owners can say, now we could get a salary cap. So it's, you know, for, fan, for the fans, they're like, oh, we don't care. Just play no matter what. A lot at stake. It's not just this season. It's after this season. What's going to happen? Salary cap. If, you know, if, if that, you know, the, the, the money's not going to be there. So it's a, it's a very, you know, I understand that it could be as much, the, if they don't play this season, they'll lose $4 billion. Yep. That's a lot of money to lose. But I'm telling you, you, you got Chris Bryant that, you know, they just had a baby. Does he want to be around, you know, his wife and that, you know, or is a lot of players, they, they, their mothers, their families live with them, especially the kids from the Dominican, stuff like that. Do they want to bring that stuff home with them? I mean, so the, 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 the illness is going to dictate what's going to happen to the leagues. And nobody knows what it is. It's, it's such an unknown that it's so difficult to, to pinpoint. And I, I, I wouldn't want to be making those decisions. I mean, I, I don't feel comfortable. Would you feel comfortable sitting in the stands right now? Oh, no, ma'am. No, ma'am. I, I think we're not going to be seeing a lot of like fans in the stands, even like the whole this social distancing thing, like the six feet. Do you have like two rows you know, and left or right of you, and then like two rows behind you. Would you use the bathroom at the stadium? I would not. I listen. I went to a Cubs game once. I didn't even go to the bathroom. So. Right. Yeah. But you know, so, so I mean, those are those are things you have to think about. You know, like you know, because that's where germs are the worst. 
Sydney? Sydney? Yeah, just one last question for me, Cheryl, going back to the, uh, to the last dance. Uh, there, was, there was many celebrities that attended those Bulls games back then, Cheryl. Who were some of your favorite celebrities that you oh. ran into? Well, there's there was quite a few. I mean, um, I'll tell you one one time. I mean, because believe me, I I worked I worked sixty to seventy eighty hours a week, so my brain was always you know involved with what I was doing. And one time uh, I came out of the locker room of the old stadium. I'm walking, out, and Richard Dent was there because Richard and Michael Jordan were very close. And Richard goes to me, "Hey, don't you want to meet my friend?" I go, "Well, well yeah." I'm look, who is I? I don't, you know, he goes. <laughs> This is John. I'm going, okay. John Bon Jovi, I'm going, <laughs> okay. So <laughs> I, I didn't know who he was. So I go, niece, I go, have you ever heard of John Bon Jovi? She's screaming in my ear. <laughs> I'm like, I met him. I have you who he is. But, you know, we had people like David Letterman. <laughs> That's what happened. Tom Cruise, David Letterman. Um, you know, we, there was all sorts of people, um, TV personalities were there. Um, you name it. There was star, I mean, Oprah would be there. It, it was just, it was like a cavalcade of stars, you know, and everywhere you went and, you know, and I, and one time this was before the championships, this was in the eighties and Charles Oakley was still on the team. And what, when you go in the locker room, to, you know, Michael would always have a group around him and I, he would always stay and talk. So sometimes I'd go the other way because I could always go back to Michael. So I went over to Charles Oakley to talk to him. And there was this small African-American man standing next to him. Mm -hmm. And I'm trying to get my job done. And I go, sir, I, I, I got to get, can I just talk to Charles? I, I get work done. I just want to do an interview. And, and the guy just kind of smiled and turned away. And Charles Oakley goes, um, you just dissed. Spike Lee. Oops. I went, oh. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh my god. But back then, he was Lars Blackman in the commercials then. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> yeah. I just, I just, oh yeah, okay. <laughs> Not a good move. <laughs> oh gosh. <laughs> but like, like you said, I mean, you know, we, we didn't know him as like Spike Lee, you know, Academy Award winning director, you know, we were just, you know, we just knew him from the commercials with Michael. So, <laughs> right. So, you know, it, it, it's, it's okay. funny because, you know, but Charles, Charles Lee were just laughing. I'm going, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. I just, <laughs> I'm just excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> All right, one more, one more question uh, about, about real quick about the Bears. Uh, the schedule came out. Um, there's a lot of predictors out there that say that the, the Bears are not going to be very good next year. You know, with all the moves you know, made, Nick Foles, Jimmy Graham, Robert Quinn, among others. I know it's very early, but do you think the Bears can be even better than they were last year? And is this sort of like make or break for Ryan Pace and Matt Nagy? I think, I think it definitely is for Ryan Pace because he his his first round draft picks have not fared well, so Cole Komet better be. I think Cole Komet's going to be a really good tight end, even though he's was taken in the second round. I think he's going to be a good tight end. Everything's going to be predicated on who uh, is behind center. Is it Mitchell Trubisky or is it Nick Foles? Whoever is going to be manning that post, 
playing that position is going to be very important that there's success. They also, their offensive line, they, I don't think they addressed it well, mm-hmm. well enough during the, you know, this off season. So um, that was a, that was a real Achilles heel for them last year. And so if they don't address that well, it's going to be a real problem. And, and season, other than that, I, I think that they're, um, I, I got a funny feeling they're going to have a competition again at the kicking game. I, I think that's really? going to be a problem again this year. Uh-huh. I, my, my, I just, I just don't think that the, that's completely satisfied. Uh-huh. So I think it's going to be a tough season, but I, but it, you know, it, it could be better than I think, but right now I'm just thinking if, if, if you don't get the quarterback to, to win you games, they're not going to, be successful. Sydney, how are you Sydney, doing? You're about to, yeah, yeah, I'm here. You're I'm back. Here. <laughs> yeah, this Wi-Fi thing, I swear whoever's my carry, I'm a well, I'm a I'll, I'll keep it clean, I'll choke them. But uh, <laughs> I want to ask you I want to ask you sure about the head coach Matt Nagy for the Bears. Uh, how important is this uh, third year of his team going to be uh, for him and the Bears this upcoming twenty twenty season? I think it's be important because um, one of the things he did do during this offseason is he revamped his offensive staff. And I think that was an acknowledgement that they weren't on the same page. And so it was very that, and it's hard because they're doing everything by Zoom. They're not in the normal meetings you have. So I think it's not an easy task. And so it's very tough when you go into a season without having all those components together so that's going to be really interesting I'm curious how his game calling is going to be will he be calling the plays or will he have somebody else do it for him because I think that's an issue for him and then thirdly I I think for for Matt Nagy is and you know I think I think he's very good about figuring out that he's at fault for something like that he's very very good about that but he's got he's going to determine his fate by the decision he makes, who's going to handle the snaps? Is it Mitch? Is it Nick? That would determine what he's going to do and how he, and I think he's going to go with Nick Foles. Do you think they should have picked up Cam Newton instead of Nick Foles? Or do you, did you agree with the decision to pick up Foles? I think the thing with Cam Newton, his injury issue, I think, I think his medicals must be saying something, you know, and, and that's, a, that's a real problem for him. I think it's going to be very hard for him um, because of his medicals. And, 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 in, and nowadays, that's that's going to matter, like because of the money you spend on that position, you know, you would have to spend a lot of money for him, and that's a, that's a problem. I mean, I love his game, but the problem he's he can't, you know, he can't stay healthy. I'm well. I'm done, Sid. You got anything else for Cheryl? No, I'm. Uh, I, I have nothing else. Cheryl covered everything we wanted to cover for the for the last two hours. Cheryl, thank you so much for joining us here today to give us your insight on the last dance and other sports issues around the league. Keep up the great work. Uh, let's do this again real soon, okay? Thank you, guys. Appreciate it, Lakina and Cindy. Have a great day. You too. You guys stay safe. It's been a pleasure. Take care. All right. All right. So now that I want to keep get you here, without you have some a good connection for a second. What do you think about like the the college the college football, the college basketball that the NCAA has announced that? You know, voluntary, we're going to have, I guess we're going to have like voluntary workouts starting June 1st. Mm-hmm. 
there have been like a lot of different things, you know, different coaches and everyone's saying, well, let's wait and see. Cause you got like some schools are going to be able to go full on, but then other schools, not really. So what do you think about all of that? Uh, it sounds like there was some uniformity there among the power five conferences. I know Mark Emmers, uh, the president of NCAA, said there was no uniform uh, date on when the uh, teams can come back. But it's, it starts like you're starting to see uh, some plans starting to come into place. So as I said before, throughout these last few weeks on the show, it looks like college football may start on time. But uh, I don't know if you saw the story uh, the last 24, 48 hours. But, you know, Ohio State holds 80,000 people. And we use the University of Michigan as our model for the last several weeks. You not, uh, I think we're not going to see full a full capacity of fans to start off with, especially you know for football. But if you can get at least half or maybe even maybe sixty percent, you should be okay. It looks like that's where we headed. I know there's a, a, still a little ways to go before uh, the NCAA and the power conferences make decisions in terms of of uh, fans entering. But to, to get the uh, college kids back on the field, it sounds like to me them most of them want to be back on the field. This is a great sign. As we said before, it's, it's not a contingency plan for the players first and testing available, and then the safety of the fans, the game should not go on. Now, as far as classes are concerned, uh, some may have to be done o- online permanently. And, and, and if you let students back on campus, how many students do you allow back on campus? Because you, you're not going to let everybody back on campus. Hell yeah, because you see, what, about like 100,000 some of these some of these campuses, even more than that. And also, money's the root here. And unfortunately, we've seen yeah. some sports get, get eliminated because there's not a lot of revenue coming in. So I don't blame a lot of these, these, these schools for like, you know what, if we have to make some modifications, you know, you missed, our, you mm-hmm. missed, our, you missed a, the little exchange that I had with Cheryl about, you know, do you want to go to the bathrooms? <laughs> you know, during all this, <laughs> especially if there's going to be like a second wave, they keep saying. So I don't know. I mean, this yeah. is something, listen, at least the NCAA is sort of stepping in. Say- Stepping in to say, listen, okay, let, let, let's try to figure something out here. Go ahead. Yeah, I was just getting ready to say, you talked about the word shows. I caused the last part of that conversation. Yeah, I don't know if you ever been to a Bears game. I've only been to one Bears game in my life. And, I, and I've heard and told not to wait in line for, for the bathroom. Thank goodness I didn't because I didn't eat or drink anything there, first of all. But if you if you ever, if you ever gone to a Bears game, have you gone before? No, I haven't. I've had the pleasure. Okay. If you do get a chance to go to the Bears game, do not go to the bathroom unless you're one of the first people there because for what I've been told and stories that I've heard, you'll be waiting in line for a long time. So as you and Cheryl talked about a few moments ago, especially now in the pandemic where, do you really want to use a public bathroom unless it's cleaned every 10 minutes? No. No, no, sir. <laughs> you got, you, I see you got your Blackhawk shirt on. I want to get this right quick before we wrap up. Uh, the NHL and the Players Union are sort of discussing maybe perhaps do like a 2014 tournament kind of thing. What do you think about that? It'll be a great idea if the NHL can, in the uh, NHLPA can get this deal done. I know they'll they're they're going to be like the NBA and play in in a, a, in a quarantine. Uh, location. I know North Dakota and South Dakota, they were discussed. I don't think they're going to play there. We don't know where they're going to play yet, but I hope they get a deal done. You know, who, which the, the two teams that are left out of the quote unquote traditional old 16 game, uh, 16 team format, the Montreal Canadiens and the Chicago Blackhawks. And you know, the NHL likes the Chicago Blackhawks. 
as our last guest, Cheryl, said over the years and when we had on the Dean Davis show, if you ever listened to her, uh, her interviews around town, the NHL still loves the Blackhawks. She still had Kane. You still had Jonathan Taves. And uh, they will draw big numbers. And yeah. so if they can get this 2014 um, uh, tournament going, they'll be great for the sport. And, uh, next, and next year, from what I read and heard, you can, uh, assuming that they start in late June or early July, you, know, you can take the rest of the offseason. You can start in November. You'll skip the All-Star game. And don't forget, the Olympics start next year as well. Not just summer, but the winter as well. I don't think the NHL players will, would have been playing in the winter Olympics next year anyway. So right. you, you, you'll bypass that one-week um, break that each NHL team gets. You'll skip the All-Star uh, break. They'll give them a few days here and there, but now you don't. You won't have an all-star break next year. So you start the season in early November, and they uh, the uh, the schedule will run accordingly like a normal year. So if they can get that um, 24 format, 2014 format done, they'll be great for the NHL. And trust me, even though the fans won't be attending, their ratings will go up as well because people are desperate to see live sports. You're going to see it with baseball next month, assuming they get a deal done. You're definitely going to see it with the NBA because there's so much storylines going on this season. And the NHL, as we said before, like Kenny, they are desperate for ratings. And darn it, if you can put your two uh, top of the original six teams in the 2014 tournament, they'll do wonders for that sport, which so desperately needs marketing right now. And let me just say this. I know that John Madonna was let go a few weeks ago from the Blackhawks. If the NHL and Commissioner Gary Batman was smart, you put John McDonough as head of your marketing because yep. that league so, uh, desperately needs a marketing makeover. Look what you did with the Cubs. We was with the Cubs those 25 years starting the fan conventions mm-hmm. and having so all other events. And you did the same thing with the Blackhawks. Now the Blackhawks convention, I know it's not going on this year because of the pandemic, but those Blackhawks conventions are popular. It, uh, those players were wearing their Blackhawks shirts and hats every time they did an interview. The NHL needs a marketing makeover. John McDonough would be the perfect man for the job. Yeah, I'm, I'm surprised there hasn't been like any Zoom calls or something because listen, he's out there and he's, listen, yeah. he's still good at his at what he does. So, you know, hopefully that that's the call that he makes. And and like you said, so there, there is this thirst for sports. I mean, we saw the the Bundesliga, you know, German soccer, soccer uh, league. They had like some of their biggest ratings ever you know, uh, NASCAR you know, and Darlington, that their race, they had like some of their best ratings in the last couple of years. So there is this hunger out there for, for live sports for folks. And you got this thing coming up with the, in the golf tournament with, you know, Brady and, and Phil versus, Ty, versus Tiger and, um, oh, and Peyton Manning. I may have it all mixed up, but yeah, those four are going to be battling out this yeah. weekend. So, you know, Memorial Day weekend just in time. So I think that's going to be get, get very big ratings. So I think there's hunger out there for sports. And I think people, you know, I think, you know, we might be slowly but surely kind of get into sort of like the sporting aspect of it back to normal. Maybe not normal, normal, but, you know. Yeah, things are looking like they're getting back on track slowly as we learn about this virus day by day. Hopefully there's a vaccine in the near future. It's going to be a while, but uh, it looks like things are, um, like you say, not getting back to normal, but getting back on track, but at a slower place, obviously slower than what we like, but we all know that when things tear down, um, it takes time to rebuild. So we are in a rebuilding phase and uh, hopefully hope springs eternal, as they say, right? So yeah, it looks like we begin that sports back. And, and let me use this analogy very carefully. 
and I think you can relate to this link here as well as I can. It's like uh, uh, you are a child being put on punishment. You did everything and then some for your parents' requirements to get back your privileges, whatever it is, your TV, internet, video games, or phone. You did that. Now you're getting it back. So that, that's, I think that's where we are right now. Yeah, little little by little, you know, you watch your favorite exactly. TV show. You watch your favorite TV show. They can kind of like use your phone for a little bit, and you can mm-hmm. start playing your game console. So yeah, so slow and yeah. steady. Just just like you know, this is just like our state. You know, we're slowly getting back to normal. And I know people are don't have the patience nowadays. But listen, as the old tortoise and the hare saying, you know, th- that story goes. Listen, slow and steady wins the race. And let let's let's you know take our time. You guys need to be patient. Patience is a virtue at this point. <laughs> yeah, as I said before, I'm not a patient guy myself either. But like you said, things do take time, and things will get better. We just have to ride this out, do what we're supposed to do, and not be stupid. Even though the weather's starting to get warm around here, just, just uh, practice social distancing, protect yourself, and you're protecting others, and then we, we should be fine. Yeah. Wear, wear your mask, you know, make sure, yeah. you know, wash your, make sure you wash your hands, keep your hand sanitizer with you, have some uh, wipes, Lysol or Clorox wipes with you. So listen, if we, if we keep doing our thing, you know, we'll, we'll get there. Like I said, it, it's, I know, I know, I know people are, it's hard. I know hard waiting, waiting is a, the hardest, but we'll get there slow and steady. Yes, we will get there in, in, in no time, hopefully sooner rather than later. Absolutely. So you can follow me at on Twitter at Keenan McGee and also at Keenan underscore McGee on Insta. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at SidKid80. Once again, at SidKid80, S-I-D-K-I-D-80, S-I-D-K-I-D-80. You can read all of my articles on the Blackhawks and White Sox and other fun lists that I've created at weareregalradio.com. That's W-E-A-R-E-R-E-D-A-L radio.com. Where can they find the show, Lakina? So they can listen to this hot. All right. Well, you can. We're not hot take artists, but. No, no, absolutely not. No, no, we're not. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Well, listen, we'll just give you our opinions and, you know, take them as you will or not. That's that's how we do it here. Um, You can listen to our shows on Anchor on We Are Wiggle Radio. You know, thanks to Kyle for giving us a platform to, you know, post our our shows and post what we do here. You, you, uh, You can listen on Anchor. And also any Spotify or anywhere where you listen to your podcast, Google Podcasts, whatever, it's all there. And hopefully we'll have these next these last couple of weeks of shows on there this weekend with a long weekend coming up. But you know, also Jason, you know, hopefully he'll be able to he'll be able to join us soon. Like I like I said, the mm-hmm. stuff going on and you know We love you, Jason. I, yeah, listen, listen, we're, you're still part of the team, you know, we'll, we'll, we still love you and you know, we'll be here when you wanna come back. So, you know, this is Jason's still very much part of the team. So for Sid, I'm Lakina. Enjoy your Memorial Day weekend. Don't act like fools. I know it's gonna be, we know it's gonna be warm, but don't act like fools. You know, wash your hands, practice social distancing. All right, uh, for Sid, I'm Lakina. This has been Second City Sports Zoom style. Coming, you know, we'll see you next week, hopefully, with a whole lot more. See ya. See ya. <laughs>